Hey, you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and with me as always, Revenue Cat CEO, Jacob Heidi. Our guest today is Colette Notaf, Head of Growth at Mile IQ and co-founder of Lightning AI. From founding multiple startups to spending more than $100 million on marketing and growth roles at several great companies, Colette has spent her career using data science to grow businesses. On the podcast, we talk with Colette about selling Mile IQ to Microsoft and buying it back, experimenting with an unlimited marketing budget, and unlocking higher retention with a focus on prosumers. Hey, Colette, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I wanted to dive right in. So we're going to talk about My Like You and super excited to talk to you about that. But before we get there, I wanted to start with your company, Lightning AI. Tell us a little bit about the, the impetus from starting that company and, and, um, and what, the, what Lightning AI is. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I love talking about my IQ, but also love talking about Lightning AI. So it's a great first question. Um, so I I will say that these things actually go hand in hand. So I used to work for my IQ way back when, like seven years ago. And uh, while I was there, one of the biggest problems that we faced is that we needed to optimize to events down the funnel Uh, but we didn't have enough data to send through quickly enough to Facebook. So it would take like whatever, 30 days for users to upgrade, but we needed information on day one and day seven, uh, to be able to make the, the right decisions. So, um, I ended up writing a whole bunch of code and learning what an API was and also (laughs) learning how to write in Python, uh, in order to try and answer this question and really figure out what what are those metrics on day one and day seven? How do they end up rolling into our day 30 CAC numbers? Uh, And then being able to optimize and set bids accordingly. This was also seven years ago. So all of Facebook has has really changed now. Um, But I, at the time I was like, this is kind of hard. I wonder if other people are facing the same problems and if they need help in similar ways. So um, I left my LIQ and went to another company, Intercom, where I ran demand generation. Uh, and what I found was exactly the same issue. So people needed to have a CAC estimate on day one and day seven for attribution windows, but we weren't getting our full funnel metrics until way later. So I left Intercom and started Lightning AI really with the goal of how do we fix these problems about data um, needing to be early and as early as possible? And how do we use data science in order to do that? Uh, So that was where we started. I think like all startups, we pivoted probably a million times in between um, what was the original goal and what we ended up doing. Uh, And I think a lot of that had to do with like changes in Facebook, but also changes in what people needed. Um, And so what we found is that as Facebook evolved and as their uh, data science improved, we didn't need really so much of a bidding algorithm. Um, But what we did need was a way of targeting users in a really effective manner and being able to um, switch those targeting options and kind of go through them really rapidly. So just like with creative testing and creative fatigue, we found that there's also audience fatigue. Uh, And this is a... TM, audience, audience fatigue coined by lightning AI. Um, 
So uh, what we do now is uh, we generate interest groups and create ad sets within a campaign to automatically test those interest groups uh, so that we can do as rapid of testing as possible um, and try and find arbitrage opportunities between small audiences and the right prices to pay. Very cool. Um, I'm curious, like how, how has that evolved in the past year? I mean, it's kind of the question on everybody's mind still in 2022 is that with app yeah. tracking transparency and other privacy initiatives, like feels like the ground is still shaking beneath us. So I'm curious, like what has changed in the last year for Lightning AI? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and the answer is not so interesting, which is really that nothing has changed. Uh, so <laughs> when we started thinking about interest targeting, um, we did the math and there were, I think, like 84 quadrillion different options for targeting, like something just like enormous. Um, and, you know, Facebook says like, oh, we're deprecating 100,000. It's like, it's not a big deal there's still trillions left in the world. So, I mean, yes, you can't, you know, target by race anymore, but like maybe you shouldn't have been doing that anyway. Right. So, so I think it's just better overall, but the smaller interest groups and um, really like any like large interest group as well, um, those are all still around and I don't see them going anywhere. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I do want to ask too, because I always, I always find it interesting to ask about um, failures, about lessons learned through failure, because we, we always talk about like, oh, what succeeded? I, I'm just curious, you know, with all the different you know, pivots that you've gone through at Lightning, Lightning AI and, and, you know, anticipating ATT and working through that and all this other stuff that's going on, um, any kind of hard won lessons uh, off the top of your mind? If you're not a salesperson, don't pretend like you are and don't make a product for enterprise <laughs> sales. <laughs> Did you learn? Because uh, what was your, like, you were you were essentially offering this, like, probably it was like a SaaS-powered, yeah. semi-services-oriented sale. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, yeah, try it. And it was a lot of, like, I'm guessing, really long sales cycles, which... <laughs> it was, like, it was so frustrating. It's just like, it's not a fun experience doing enterprise sales. And we were like going to events, which I mean, now, thank goodness, we pivoted away from that because like we wouldn't be a business if that was our only acquisition <laughs> strategy. But it was a lot of like events. We had like dinners. We would do like co-marketing things. And it was like such a drain, um, like psychologically and emotionally for me. It was just like not my jam. Um, and so we actually, uh, purposefully moved down market, which not many companies say, um, but it was a really good experience for, for us. And it allowed us, it allowed us to work with, um, companies who were much less demanding, uh, and also really provide a lot more value to their businesses. Uh, it means a lot more to somebody who, mm -hmm has kind of no other options um, versus, you know, being able to just like hire more people and kind of throw more marketing managers at the problem of figuring out Facebook. Uh, and we're able to work with a lot of companies that can't really afford to hire an agency, but kind of need something more than just like an individual um, or even one of the founders like running Facebook ads. And it's been really nice. It's been a really nice niche that we fell into. Yeah, I'll uh, jump in and share as well that i was really grateful. No, <laughs> Jacob, uh, Revenue Cat founder, grateful for the pandemic. But uh, I, <laughs> I went to one 
basically one conference or two conferences before the pandemic as an enterprise, you know, basically we didn't think of it as enterprise at the time, but I I have to agree. Like I get after two or three days of like standing at a booth and like, you know, whatever I, I'm just, it's like, I'm for the birds. I come from the same world. I come from, I come from like mass user acquisition, B2C. And like one day I was like, oh, let's make a, let's make a subscription infrastructure thing. And then I, yeah, I woke up and like, oh, now I'm running an enterprise sales company, which (laughs) is fine. It's good. It's good challenges, but I feel constantly like, uh, yeah, constantly ill-fitted for, for this role. But, uh, you know, we learn, we try to figure it out. So. I'm speaking at a conference um, in June in Vegas. And first of all, I'm flying down and back in the same day, but I'm also just like so excited to not have to like bullshit around with all of these people and be like, let me listen to your story. I'm so interested, you know, and I'm just like really excited. Anybody who's been to a revenue cap booth. Yeah. I'll stop you at a revenue cap booth. Absolutely. If you're there. I do not think that when, when you come to a booth. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's hard. I mean, I guess, I mean, it's worth kind of transitioning into the, a bit of your story. And we were, we were, uh, discussing before we recorded that I believe we met back in probably 2015 when you were at my IQ initially, um, mm-hmm. just to set the stage, I was working at this company called Elevate, which I probably say on every other podcast, but just to tell people again, um, which was, you know, we were a mobile subscription service and we were trying to figure out user acquisition and we really had no idea what we were doing at all. Um, and I don't remember how we got connected with MileIQ. Maybe it was through one of our investors or something, but I, we knew that MileIQ was one of these companies that kind of had figured it out or at least like kind of early. Um, and I, I believe you and one of your, your colleagues came and, and talked to us <laughs> about it. Um, and and with some of the stuff that, that you were kind of mentioning at Lightning AI as well, I don't think, I don't think it necessarily uh, <laughs> stuck because we didn't really get user acquisition figured out, I think until after I left, which maybe I was the problem, but, uh, uh, but, but yeah, I found, I found, I found it interesting. So, so, so yeah, maybe tell us a little bit, I guess, about how you ended up or t- your time at my IQ, like what, what you were doing there. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, because I think when I think of my IQ, they were one of these very early companies that proved out the. I don't know if you want to call it personal subscription service or, or consumer SaaS, but it was like one of these first like semi-prosumer subscribe yeah. on the app store at scale. Um, so yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about, uh, about your time there and, and, how, and how you got back. You know what's crazy is my like you, we started 10 years ago and like so much has changed in the app store. It's totally different. But 10 years ago, you know, you could kind of like stumble your way through and find a new app. Um, and that was like a real strategy <laughs> on the app store was just like being, you know, new and like being top ranking for the day in the finance category because people would find us that way. And so, so much is, is interesting to kind of see like what, what happened and what did we build out because it was 10 years ago versus like, what are the things that we can do now? Um, so, I mean, I appreciate your, your kind words about us figuring it out, but at the same time, like we were a $60 a year app and no one knew if people were going to pay that. And I remember our investors would come in at my like you all the time. And they were like, you need a 99 cent plan and it can be the worst plan in the world, but you need one because you're losing out on market share. And I actually don't know that that's true. I mean, we're, you know, now I'm like, Oh, let's do testing and figure it out. But 
I don't really know that that was a thing, but it was a big deal that we made an app for $60 and we were able to acquire users and, you know, make money from that. Um, It's also super interesting because at the time, like all of our users came from from paid. I mean, we had no like no one was searching for Maya like you. No one had heard of Maya like you. And it's not really like an easy name to stumble into so Mm -hmm. um so much of our so much of our growth was really through paid advertising which was really um the the way that we figured out how to do it and it was one of the reasons ultimately why microsoft uh, wanted to acquire us and i won't tell you specifics about how much they were paying or how much we were paying per install but i will say that they were paying 10 times what we were paying um and so it was like very interesting that we made uh this app that people were paying kind of a lot of money for um back before people were paying for apps really at all except maybe like a you know one dollar game yeah i mean that was the i think what we were trying to we 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 have very similar story in that sense like we had been working on this language learning app that was didn't have subscriptions it was kind of a low price point and yeah we found there was challenges there right and um yeah i remember that being our our interest in my like you to begin with i think because you know Nobody had proven that anybody would pay anything significant for apps, yeah. right? There were a few like niche pro tools that were maybe $30, right? One time. Um, but then also like, no, there just wasn't a lot of examples out there of, of uh, prosumer for lack of a better term, or like yeah. apps that were actually useful and part of somebody's day-to-day job, right? Which mile tracking was, was one of them. Right. Um, and, and then it also, I think perfect timing. Right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was like us. And invoice to go. Yeah. And it was <laughs> Which, like, yeah. just us. <laughs> yeah. And then also, like, I think at that time, too, and I'm curious, like, how you still have, you know, to go back to what it was like to build a, a subscription app before Revenue Cat, because I don't know how anybody does it. Uh. But uh, <laughs> we but we were doing it. Like, did you run into a lot of issues there? I mean, that was really Wild West, like, early days. Like, there wasn't tools like Revenue Cat or anything else. Um did you have to figure that all out in house? Did you have a lot of stumblings there, or was it was it yeah. <laughs> a lot of investment? Or? Well, I mean, we were just using, <laughs> you know, we only had like Apple, Google Pay options. There wasn't anything else, and there wasn't really any other options. Right. Um. So, I I mean, in terms of like, there were just challenges that don't exist anymore. Like, we couldn't do promo codes in the app, and so then we had to figure out, okay, well, like, how do we get promo codes, and how does that get integrated? And like, if we want to run a pricing test, we have to like list that in the app store and then other people see it and they're like, why is, you know, like, why is there a $3 option when I only see a $6 option? Um, But I think the biggest change uh, is really that now you can force people to do a free trial. And at the time you, you couldn't. Mm. Uh, So that was like a big thing. And then the second thing was like, also 10 years ago, you had to have a free version of the app and it couldn't be like a free trial. It had to be indefinitely forever. You had to be able to provide value for free for your users. I forgot about that. I have not. We're still a little haunted by it. Uh, crazy times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot how incremental um, the evolution to the market we have now, which is like subscriptions, everything. Uh, yeah. Very like laissez-faire as far as like what you do and what kind of software you sell. And, and I remember when we were transitioning revenue or uh, elevate to subscriptions having to like kind of make some changes and arguments to like 
yeah, oh, we have to have content and it's released quarterly and like all these things before Apple finally like, you know, I think they started to taste how good that service's revenue is and they were just like, <laughs> okay, let it go. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was certainly a, a different time in there, you know, I mean, a lot of credit to the MyLikey team for kind of just figuring it out uh, because, you know, now it's, it's, it's easy enough to hire people and copy what others are doing. And there's a million apps out there that are doing user acquisition and it's kind of now a science and an industry, but I don't think in 20, you know, even in 2015, especially on the subscription side, like, I don't think, I don't think it was, uh, yeah, nearly the same as it is now. Yeah. Well, funny that you brought it up about the copying, because like one of the most of the questions that I had coming into this now was, do we have the right price? And so I'm like looking at our competitors, you know, what prices do they have? And they have the same prices that my like you had. And I'm like, oh, you guys like one, come on. And two, like, is this the right price? Like, did anybody run a pricing test and figure it out? Or are we just like all flying blind from my like you 10 years ago? So I feel like we have to be kind of the drivers of the industry again and, and really figure out like, what is the right price? Because we don't know. Yeah, and speaking of being uh, the drivers of the industry, again, um, I didn't know this because I don't think really any kind of tech sites picked it up or news sites picked it up, but Microsoft sold Mile IQ back to the founders, mm-hmm. and that's part of you rejoining in the fall. So tell, tell us a little bit about um, that, how that transpired, as much as you can, obviously, and then um, <laughs> about you rejoining Mile IQ. Yeah, crazy is a crazy story. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say that no one expected it, but it's been a fun and exciting, like cool byproduct of this. Um, so uh, we were acquired in 2015 and Microsoft spent a lot of money on marketing, like a lot of there was a lot of money. I mean, I remember I was doing the projections and it went from like, what if we spent $10 million a year to what if we had all the money that you ever wanted? Um, And that was a cool, that was like a cool question that we got to do and got to be a part of at Microsoft. Um, But I think ultimately what ended up happening is that uh, Microsoft was like, I don't think this is going to be a billion dollar line item on our revenue sheet and they're a trillion dollar company now. And if you're not a billion dollar company, you kind of like don't make the mark. Um, So even though we are a profitable business uh, and we have a lot of users, we catch, we're going to catch our hundred billionth mile driven this year, which is pretty crazy. Um, So we have all of these like amazing things, but uh, for Microsoft, it just, they didn't see it as something that was going to move the needle. Um, So they reached back out to our founders, Dan and Chuck, and said, you know, hey, I think that this is a really good business for someone. It's kind of like not the right fit for us right now. Um, And so they sold it back. (laughs) (laughs) So um, thank you, Microsoft, for allowing that to happen. Uh, They are still investors in the company and they get our uh, weekly investor updates, I assume. So, you know, keep in touch. (laughs) (laughs) I'll, uh, I'll interject here and just say that, like, you've seen, this is a pattern I've seen, I've seen a few times and it often is, can be really helpful for the company, right? Because it's like, you know, a big corporation like that, it's easy to get lost in the strategy. And if you don't have the right people in charge, like really taking, it's hard to make something grow unless it's like so far and away, 
already ahead and it's just a machine and they could just pump cash into it and it's going to grow. But like, that's not, I don't know of mobile apps that are like that. Like mobile is fickle and the industry has changed in five years. Like nobody's yeah. would have been able to keep up with it inside of embedded in a big company. Um, so I'm really glad to hear that there's a lot of ways that can go. They could have just shuttered it, right? They could have sold it to private equity, which isn't always a bad thing, but I, I, I think getting it back into founders hands and not to be like biased here but i always think that the person that especially if you have a five-year break where you're like you think about all the things that you wish you could have done and now you might yes. now they actually have that chance that's really that's really kind of exciting i mean look at this reddit's a great example of where this happened like reddit was bought by Condé Nast like very early um and it kind of did okay but not great under Condé Nast. and then the founders came back in and now they're they've seen a renaissance and they're they're gonna ipo soon so yeah, it's not actually a, a terrible path to take, right? And it's a second chance, right, for a company to to you know I don't know what the goals are and, and now and with with the founders have in mind and stuff, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's exciting when uh, especially when you think of the way these companies like mine, like you, like a lot of our customer companies are structured. It's like you enter in these long term relationships with customers, right? You're you're saying like, hey, put especially for something like mile tracking, like people have years and years of data in there now. Right, you you want that protected, and you want somebody really focused on being the, the the caretaker of that data and that experience. So yeah, making sure the asset ended up in the hands of somebody who's going to keep investing. That's that's you know it's a it's a feel good it's a feel good story. I wanted to dig into that a little bit and ask more about that long term lifetime value. Um, and I don't know if you've you've had a chance to dig into the data or you know how you think about this in marketing, but you know, I would imagine at this point you do have at least a small cohort of users who've been subscribed continuously for 10 years. Um, so what does that look like just from a, you know, really understanding what a lifetime value is, but then also, you know, how, how, how does that play into kind of return on ad spend and how you think about marketing and customer acquisition when you do have proof that some of these people are going to stay subscribed for, for over a decade? Yeah, absolutely. So what's great about it is we basically have like four subscription types, right? So we have monthly annual on Android and iOS. And what's great is that we know the real lifetime value. Like we can say, how much are we going to make in one year, three years and five years? And we can pick what we want for our payback period. And we can determine right away from that, like what is our max um, that we're willing to afford. And having that amount of data is is pretty crazy. I will say that there's like some interesting, you know, caveats. So we're always thinking like, what is the right year to look back for like the historical that's going to match this year? So we've been like, well, we need the right like ad right. spend, you know, like not COVID when no one was driving and we need the right kind of ratio between paid and organic. So We've earmarked a few that are like our sample years, but we have five years of data from them. So we know we know the real lifetime value um, and it's a luxury that we definitely didn't didn't have before. So there's a lot less estimation uh, and there's a lot more reality. Um, it almost feels kind of like e-commerce buying uh, where you can actually say, mm -hmm. like, I want this specific ROAS um, versus typical subscriptions where you're saying, like, I want my payback period to be X, Y, Z. And you're, you know, kind of like, well, I've been around for two years and I want a three year payback. So... Great job. <laughs> yeah. And then do you uh, specifically look at different cohorts within that to like, do you separate out kind of more business enterprise focus versus maybe like small businesses that kind of come and go? Is there kind of different 
churn patterns and different um, retention among the, these different cohorts? So while we were at Microsoft, we developed an enterprise product. Uh, and one of the biggest attractions for Microsoft for this enterprise product was that our churn was much lower than traditional Microsoft Office. And so we actually started giving away MileIQ for free as a way of increasing uh, their their retention. And I don't know if many apps mm. can say that. Uh, so that was um, that was a really cool kind of side unexpected result of of what happened with my LIQ and Microsoft. Um, so I would say that our enterprise product isn't old enough that we really have true data on that side. Um, and honestly, like we're a consumer first company. Um, our biggest segment of users are solopreneurs, freelancers, um, and it's going to stay that way, um, I guess, at least until we're proven otherwise. Um, but those those people tend to have a profession where they drive for work. And so they're sticking around because they're not going to change unless they change their job. Like if you're a real estate agent, you're going to drive for work today. You're going to drive for work tomorrow. You're going to drive for work until you retire. Um, and so that's not really changing. I think it'll be interesting as we get more exposure into this enterprise product, kind of what that means. Uh, and I think one of the biggest questions for for us as a company right now and kind of for the next probably like year or so is it's kind of like, who are we going to focus on? Um, I would say we're very much in the mindset of like back to basics right now. But we have all these enterprise users from Microsoft. And so we're also building a product that's going to suit their needs as well. And I think be a lot more user friendly. So um, we do have the two the two sides to to this marketplace. Um, and we're just going to see what ends up happening. I will also say it's like super interesting to see um, what happens with people from certain companies that clearly allow their employees to expense mile IQ because we'll have like from a large like contracting company will have, you know, like a hundred different emails and like 20 of them are still, <laughs> are, are still um, reliable and the other 80 bounce. Uh, and so, you know, you can kind of see this trajectory in the data of like what's happening with these companies over time, with their employees over time, um, and, and also kind of who's driving for work, but you also see the virality of it. So mm -hmm. it's really cool to be able to say like, okay, we got this person coming in today from XYZ company and then like they signed up five of their co-workers um, and to me that's like the interesting part of the enterprise model is not so much like how do we do this enterprise thing and I think I'm over it like we're all over it, right? But um, I, I think it's a really interesting question to think about, like, if we if we think about this enterprise product kind of like a referral mechanism, how does that change our acquisition strategy? And are we able to tap into these people who are maybe like, you know, super referrers at their at their company um, and see what we're able to do with that? I am. Um... I think the this profile is fascinating because like we talk to a lot of different apps and I, I'm excited across I'm, all of the segments that we serve. But I have to admit <laughs> that like this solo, solo worker, solo entrepreneur or like individual, there's a lot of really interesting themes here with mobile SaaS and this particularly this profile because I've seen in other companies that serve via App Store, Play Store are serving this kind of like work use case. There's a lot of, well, one, I say retention tends to be a lot higher, you know, stickiness, like CAC goes down, intention of the users go up. It's much clearer what you're trying to sell. 
Um, there's a value because, you know, people are using it to make money. They're using it to do their jobs. Like a lot of things go easier than if not to say that there isn't like you can't build good consumer businesses that are more for entertainment or like uh, other other purposes. But seems to like if you take that that going up market, but you don't go all the way to enterprise where it gets crazy and painful, but you stop in the middle where it's like, OK, like we're building something <laughs> for your business. And then you get yeah. this really sweet spot, this like prosumer sweet spot. And then you end up with cool stuff, too, like. Like what you're mentioning with with you know you, somebody signs up with a work account, but you know when they leave, they're probably gonna continue as long as they can keep using that software. They'll take it to their next company, right? Yeah. And you see this a little bit with like real enterprise SaaS tools. Like if somebody uses some you know like Looker for example, I'll say like I don't know when I left Elevate, I brought Looker there. I liked it a lot. I came to my new company. I brought it. I brought it to Revenue Cat because it's a great, it's a tool I like to use, right? That's not a big scale. That's a six-figure outlay to like get that. But you can think of these little tools in the same way. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, this is my personal work stack. It's like my IQ. It's like da, 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 whatever. And they bring it into a new place. But that's an interesting like, I guess like promo codes, referrals and things like that. But it's an interesting uh, kind of motion to try to market towards, I would say, compared to just like trying to like bang, get people on the app store and get their... Um, you know, get them the first time they're searching like, you know, mileage tracker or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's also this like, how do I, how do I like increase referrals and stuff like this? Um, Which have, have you mentioned promo codes? Like, did you in the past or, or are you now like experimenting with anything along those lines of, of trying to, yeah, incent virality amongst the like long tail? Well, what's really interesting is that um, one of the biggest questions that I've been seeing recently from our users and especially our our tax preparers is um, basically something like I want to force all my clients <laughs> to use my IQ because I ask them every year for their mileage log and they look at the ceiling and they're like, oh, I don't know where it is. Like, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think that's going to be something that we really start looking into Um this year, this year more as well. And then we do have like promo codes. We do uh, like tax day promo and we ran like a Black Friday promo and we don't do a lot of them, but uh, every once in a while you can get a pretty good deal. I'm curious, you know, having worked on Lightning AI for a few years and and from my understanding, you kind of started more as an agency and then transitioned Mm -hmm. into ad tech. I mean, like, you know, kind of a product you could sell more directly. Um, but I'm really curious, and, and now that you're back at MileIQ, kind of your thinking, having seen all different sides of this, what does it look like in 2022 to build a growth team? You know, like if if you're a small app, you you know have some funding or you see some product market fit, you know, from your view, having seen it all, what are those kind of steps? You know, what's the balance between hiring an outside agency versus hiring your first growth employee? And how do you manage that buildup? Yes, great question. Uh, so the way that we are organized is my team is called Try and Buy. Uh, and so we are responsible for onboarding users into the product and then all subscription management and pricing tests. We are a team of engineers full time. Uh, We have one designer coming on board. I shouldn't jinx that. We have one designer coming on board, hopefully. Um, (laughs) And uh, then there's me. Um, And things I've outsourced are, um, I I have a contractor who does engagement. I have a contractor who does product marketing. Uh, and I 
shamelessly use lightning AI <laughs> to manage to manage our ad spend. Um, so I would say that like kind of the more traditional marketing elements I've chosen to outsource. Uh, and I think that that's partly, um, you know, kind of like my my choice and experience on what I feel comfortable allowing someone else to take over. Um, but I think it's also because a lot of what we're doing right now is just figuring out like, what does it mean to build an app in 2022? Uh, and the answers to a lot of those questions are, well, we need different software, we need different tools, like, there's, you know, new ways to run a B tests in the app, and we don't need to build our own feature flag software in order to run this anymore. And so um, there's a lot of just like cleanup that has to happen. Uh, our whole, there's a lot of screens that are in React Native and, you know, people don't do that so much anymore. <laughs> so um, that needs to switch out. Uh, there's like old Microsoft code and I don't know what language, but no one else knows it either. <laughs> and so we've got we've got a lot of end work to to catch up on. And um, I, th I would say that that's like definitely our primary. Well, growth is always our primary focus, but like we need to fix a bunch of stuff in the in the app to make it look like something from 2022. Um, and so that tends to be just the focus of, of my team right now. I would say, you know, in general, from talking to other growth teams, like engineering tends to be the thing that you can't outsource. Um, so it's not mm. surprising to me that we would have kind of fallen into that same bucket. But I will say, like, it's fun kind of becoming like a product owner, product manager, and uh, getting to, you know, run, run all of this and really figure it out. And I don't think there's a lot of growth teams that are as engineering focused as as mine is becoming. Uh, and it's cool to be able to really see like, here's my hypothesis, here's what we're going to test, and like know from end to end, like, why is this taking an extra four days? And they're like, well, we had to redo the entire code base because blah, blah, blah. And also I found this SDK from like your old general manager's uh, company that he's on the board of and like, do we need it anymore? And I'm like, <laughs> good question. This is something we're running into now. Like I'm, as we're transitioning into a more a more systematic growth program at Revenue Cat as well. Like uh, everybody I talk to has grow has engineering resources dedicated to growth. I think especially yeah. in something where you have this many users, where it's very programmatic, where you can't just like have conversation. You know, you're not a pure enterprise thing where you can just show up, mm -hmm. and, you know, at a conference now and again, which can be challenging because. I think you're in a nice place because you know, like mile IQ, the product works. Like you have product market fit, yes. like tracks mileage, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, yeah. uh, so there's not maybe as much pull to like uh, monopolize those engineering resources on like new features and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But I think I, you know, I, we walked right into this one, and I, we should have done it earlier, which is to like make sure you take off like some percentage of engineering resources. Um, you know, I, when I think about revenue guest story, like we should have taken like, okay, this amount of revenue, engineering resources for infrastructure, this amount is for growth. And then the rest is for like new product and development. Yeah. Um, you don't realize the ratios are different for every company, but I think this is one thing that, you know, growth, you just have to now, like everything takes growth engineering. Now it's not, it's not something that, yeah, especially at the customer sizes that MileIQ operates at. Like you're everything is like a system, right? So I don't know how that translates, David, into your initial question about what found you know, <laughs> what the first hire and stuff like that's a little bit challenging if you don't have the resources 
of you know a company that's raised or is profitable or has reached scale. Um, but it's worth thinking about um, because like growth is not a afterthought, right? For any of these companies, right? Like it's it's got to be kind of part of it because even if your even if your goal is only sustainability, you still need a growth aspect because you're going to be constantly churning, right? You're going to be constantly yep. like losing market share to just the tides of the, the, the market and all these things. So uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing to plant in founders and, and team builders heads like early. Well, Hey, I wanted to wrap up on a, on a bit of a personal note. Uh, we haven't really talked about this much on the podcast, but, but you wrote this really lovely post about planning for your maternity leave with your first child. And so I just wanted to ask, um, you know, people will link to the blog post in the, uh, in the show notes uh, so people can read the post itself. But if you would just give us a, a quick summary of the post and kind of how you thought about taking time off. And then, and then I'd love to actually hear how it actually went. <laughs> and, you know, with, with COVID, with like business building, like Jacob had uh, his first child a year after starting Revenue Cat. I had four kids while running my ad business. Like we're all humans. It's a huge topic, right? Like it's it's a big part of it. Like this is not a, you know, especially for folks later in their careers, potentially like fitting this in and making it work is is hugely important. So, yeah. Yeah, I will say one of the questions that was top of mind for me when I was at Microsoft was like, should I stay here and take my six months maternity paid leave and like <laughs> keep it in my back pocket? You know, that's like a real question. And um, to the sense that like women need to lean in in the same way that men do is like, no, this isn't something that I'm going to like stick around for for three, four or five years, however long it takes. Like, that's not what we should be doing. So, I mean, I'll say this, like with my first son, you don't know what you don't know. And I'd never held a newborn baby before. I'd never <laughs> a diaper. I'd never made a bottle. Like I was like brand new. And people kept telling me, you know, you need eight weeks. Like you really have to like be there. And um, I think that, you know, ultimately like there's different things that women versus men can do with babies. And that's just like the truth of our bodies. And uh, so with my first kid, I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to take off eight weeks. And we were like in a high growth velocity phase. And I was like, this is gonna like kill me. Like, what are we gonna do? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so that was what I had going into it. And so there was like definitely a lot of nervousness. And I brought in a contractor and I was like, I think you can handle all of this, you know, good luck. <laughs> See you soon. Um, <laughs> And, uh, so that was like what I, what I felt like going into it. Um, I had an emergency C-section with my first. And so there's also like, you know, there was like a lot of nervousness about that too. Um, I ended up having a super awesome recovery. Um, but then there were like all of these issues with breastfeeding and, you know, just like as a first time parent, there's so much that's placed on women and like breastfeeding is just this thing that everyone tells you is like so critically important. My hospital is baby friendly, which effectively means that like they don't even let you use formula until day three after your kid's born. And so my son was like underweight. He was two weeks early. His glucose levels were low, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, can't I just give him formula? <laughs> Like, didn't we invent this for this reason? Um, anyway, the answer is no. <laughs> Not to interrupt, but it's kind of like growth advice, right? Like everybody's got their <laughs> advice, which is the right thing to do. And because they did the science and whatever, and you're like, listen, you're not in my shoes. Just like, let me like figure this out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so long story short, it turns out that if you are not breastfeeding and like exclusively, 
uh, your partner can really help you a lot more. So we figured that <laughs> mm-hmm. out really early on. Um, and I was like, you know, maybe I'd like to sleep. Uh, and my husband um, works part time and his goal in life was to be a stay at home dad. And I was like, why am I killing myself and like killing my body, trying to figure this stuff out and like doing all of these things. And meanwhile, you're like not really working all the time. Like you take nights. Yeah. Um, so that was how it turned out. Uh, and I was back to work mm, like four weeks and I was like, what's everybody up to? And they were like, do you need some money? Great job us. Like nothing broke. And I was like, we did it. (laughs) High fives all around. Um, so I had my second son, uh, just this past September and that was interesting because one, he was four weeks early and two, I started at my like queue again in August. And I was basically like, I'm going to see you guys for like eight weeks and then I'm going to be gone. Like, is that cool? <laughs> and it was, so that was great. Um, but like knowing, you know, what I knew this time around, I was like, okay, well, we're going to do combination feeding. We're going to do bottle feeding at night and like husband, you know, good luck. And I was also like, nanny is starting as soon as I have this <laughs> child. Yeah. So um, those are the things and the pieces of advice that I give people all the time. Because like, if you think about, if, if you think about yourself, not as like, I am mother and I need to, you know, do all of these things because it's required of me and move to I am a human and I have yeah. a partner and both of us can share this job like a lot more equally. Um, it becomes it becomes a lot more manageable. So I was back to work like a little bit at four weeks and then well, like part time kind of through eight weeks. Uh, but I would say that there was like a lot of stuff that was happening between four and eight weeks. And definitely everybody was like, oh, my God, we need you all the time. And it was so funny to me this time because like I think my uh, employees at Lightning AI like actually handled it a lot better. <laughs> But, you know, it all worked out. And now I have two wonderful COVID babies. uh, And I took my toddler to swim class this weekend. And he was like, way overwhelmed by the number of people, which was like 10. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, we're all we're all making our way through it. Um, But I'm actually in a VC backed moms group on Slack. And if there are any listeners out here who are um, part of that group and would like to join the Slack group, I really, really recommend it. And the number one piece of advice people give is like, don't get hung up on breastfeeding. Yeah. Like breastfeeding is like more than a full time job. And women who do it like you're incredible. You're amazing. Good for you. It was not me. I will also say that like, Pumping is not something that is easy or fun. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't. I, I I wouldn't know. I've been I've been party to the act. I've been you know <laughs> part of the educational process, but I have very no firsthand experience. But I believe you know just the fact that you have to be like sitting <laughs> and yeah. you have to sit and hold something with your two hands, and then you're yeah. like, well, what's this kid doing? <laughs> it's just like not a thing. So I will also say like. Uh, I mean, there are a few like products that I always really recommend to people who are like, I don't have, you know, leave and I'm like going to be kind of on call while I'm having a baby. Uh, And one is the snoo, which I call my night nurse. Mm. Uh, And the other one is a hands free um, breast pump. It really makes like a lifetime of difference. And it just like allows you to be a regular person. And then the third is the nanny. (laughs) 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 who who i will really who i will readily recommend i will also say my mom did a great job helping out with our toddler uh but but in general nanny first priority 
like parents the, uh, kind of set, mm. yeah <laughs> just professionals are good you know no, no <laughs> knocks on our parents but uh, you know i'll second i'll just add the the point you made about the partnership and stuff and not to plug revenue cats like parental policy or whatever but i think this was a mistake that i made early and uh or when i did my parental leave was thinking that you're taking yeah kind of a uh misogynistic or i don't know like like mother centered or like primary uh-huh. parent centered view of paternity or parental leave and i was like three days off i'm back i was at a conference like a week later it's like superhero like taking the whole thing like a big dummy uh and like one of the biggest regrets obviously the time i missed with my my kid in those early days and like i had a lot of support and i wasn't there full time and all that i was trying to but i was trying to do all the things but the the amount of stress i was adding to the family right the amount of stress i was adding by not just being fully focused and there and being like oh yeah i know this kid's important but i also have this fancy business that's so important or whatever <laughs> which can be true but i like don't have to express it by <laughs> being so rushing to get back and 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 the other thing is like you mentioned i mean i think it's a great time for your company to grow. Like it's a great time, like dropping folks out. It's why yeah. like our parental leave, I'm, we have key people going out all the time and it's it's good. It's good for the company. It forces us, it shows us where our weak points are, like where we need to hire more. If somebody goes on leave and it totally breaks the company, like, okay, like that's something we need to focus on because like it should break the company a little bit, right? Like there's this mix, right? It doesn't break the company at all, it's a problem. But it, but if it totally cripples the company, then like we, we also have a problem, right? So it's a good, there's a, there's a thing in machine learning for like neural nets called dropout where they like take out nodes in the, the graft and 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 retrain it and it makes the network better. And I think there's a similar similar thing with parental leave. It's like when you drop out parts of the network, the company gets stronger and better and you learn where your weaknesses are and things like this. So yeah, those that's my two cents. Obviously, I don't have uh uh a full 360 view. <laughs> it's like I think the my parental contributions are admittedly probably much easier. But yeah, no, I think it's hard. It's founders. Founders and parental leave is a, like a constant conversation. And, and yeah. you know, I think no matter if your company's big and venture backed and scaling or small and like, but if you're, you know, or, or even if you're an employee, right? Like if, if you're a critical person on a team at a company that's scaling and stuff like this, like it's, it's not always easy, but I think, yeah, I think the, I love the advice too of learn it on your own and make your own choices and don't feel so like <laughs> you have to follow somebody else's like yeah idea of what you know I'm, I'm out here like dispensing advice too like when people tell me they want to take a short leave i'm like yeah if that's if that's what feels right to you like here's what my experience was but like everybody's is different and everybody's situation is different and coming back part-time was a really important thing for me because i was like i know that i can get a lot done part-time if like that part-time isn't spent you know in a million meetings Mm-hmm. No, sorry, I can't um, take this. Uh, I can't take this weekly whatever sync uh, yeah. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm still on. I'm still on leave. Sorry, I can't take meetings. That's brilliant. Well, it was actually great because what ended up happening. So we're fully remote. We have a team like globally. We're never on any of the same time zones, and it actually forced us because I wasn't there to say like, how do we run meetings asynchronously? Uh, and so oh. we're able to like get rid of a bunch of meetings. So not only did I not have to go, but like now no one has to go to like these meetings. That what's the, what's the one sentence? Uh, what's the one sentence hack? How did you figure out how to run meetings asynchronously? Um, so we write reports beforehand, like kind of Amazon style, but not six pages, like mm-hmm. a half a page is probably fine. Um, and then people have to read it. And if there's comments, we talk about the comments. And if there's no comments, you don't need a meeting. It's brilliant. Love it. New policy at Revenue Cat. Uh, 
<laughs> nice. Well, with that, I, I, we do need to wrap it up. But is there is there anything else that you wanted to share? Is my like you hiring or Lightning AI or anything else you wanted to share with the audience as we wrap up? Uh, in terms of hiring, I'm pretty sure that we're hiring another product designer. Um, I am so desperately looking for a full stack web developer. If you are a person who is like, I'd like to learn about mobile apps, but oops, all I know is web. Please come and work for me. I promise I won't make you sit in meetings all day. Um, and uh, if you are listening and you're a MyLIQ user and you're like, why are you guys still using Bing Maps? I promise it's getting solved. I like hear all of you loud and clear. Your messages come straight to my inbox and I read every one of them. And like, we're working on it. We're fixing it. We're going to make it better. It's going to go back to the way it was, but also better than that. And uh, I promise that you are heard and loved. So thank you for being a part of <laughs> being a part of my like you and therefore being a part of my life. All right. Thank you so much, Colette, for being on the show. And um, yeah, talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Thank you.